0: Plus, you get free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com with the promo code SELFIE. Today's episode is sponsored by Vetic. Somovetic devices rely on frequency therapies and the healing powers of precious and semi-precious stones and metals to create a natural energy field to harmonize your home. It does this through the controlled release of energy from precious and semi-precious stones. It creates a 360 degree field with a radius of 100 feet in all directions. The founder of Somavetic launched these devices in 2011 as a response to his own ongoing health struggles. After years of no success with Western medicine, he turned to traditional Chinese medicine and found a variety of healing properties with stones and minerals. After some time, he was able to heal his body and has helped others as well, and his experience inspired him to create Somavetic. If you're interested in mitigating EMFs and creating a harmonic field in your environment, these devices are a great solution, and they are beautiful. Each device is comprised of their own semi-precious stones with unique properties. Somavetic is a small company and all products are handmade and hand assembled in their Crystal Valley in the Crystal Valley of the Czech Republic. If you want to try SomaVetic, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee to let you try. Visit SomaVetic.com and use the code SELFIE for 10% off. That's S-O-M-A-V-E-D-I-C.com with the code SELFIE for 10% off. Hey, everyone. I'm Kristen Howerton, a writer and a psychotherapist. And I'm Rue Powell, an admitted workaholic and self-care Luddite. And you are listening to SELFIE, a weekly podcast about women learning to take better care of themselves.
1: We think self-care is important.
0: Hey, guys. Well, today we are going to be talking with activist Drew Hart. He is an author of the book, The Trouble I've Seen and Who Will Be a Witness. He is a sought after speaker on the topic of racial justice. And I've known him for a couple years. And he is just a really wise voice on the topic of race and anti-racism work. And he is going to be answering some questions for us, especially for those of us who are interested in getting more involved in anti-racism work, but don't know where to start. We're also going to be hearing from BJ on the topic of how to navigate election season with our family and friends whose political views differ. Um, I feel like every November, you know, things get very heated as we lead up to the election. But this year definitely feels like it's a fever pitch, whether that's because of the pandemic or because of the unique circumstances going on politically. Um, But I know that tensions are high with family and friends. um, So she's going to help us navigate that a little. But I've got Rue here um, to do a self-care check-in. Rue, how are you doing?
1: Hi. I uh, had a great weekend because I got to see my mom f- and spend time with her. I loved seeing those photos. It So... You know, I have like a little bit of a weird family structure, but uh, I love my mom and I haven't been able to really spend time with her since February. She's immunocompromised and so on and so forth. And my girls have been missing her so much too. So we figured that um, she and I both got tested mm-hmm. and it came back negative And then we felt okay to spend the weekend together. So yeah. she spent the weekend with us and cooked a lot of Filipino food and hung out with the girls and watched movies. And it was just so nice. And it was just kind of the shot in the arm I needed. And I feel like 2020 has been hard for so, for so many of us, but uh, it's definitely been hard for me on a number of levels. And I really felt like it was kind of this moment where I was like, oh man, I really could have used my mom all year long. You know what I mean?
0: I do. So,
1: uh, You know, now the last time she saw my eldest, she was taller than my eldest. Now my eldest is taller than her. And, you know, but it was really, it was really nice. Although I don't know when we'll be able to do that again, but it was just what kind of all of us needed. So I feel really good coming off that weekend. Yeah. And uh, I am getting LASIK this week. Yeah, tell me about that. Well, um, I've been wanting to do it for a long time, and mm-hmm. uh, but you know it's expensive, and uh, every single one of my kids needs braces, and you know how that goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: In the but middle of that. Yep. yeah,
1: yes, and it's uh, so we're finally at the point where you know I, I am able to go get LASIK. Um, we've been like saving up in our you know HSA, and um, I went, and it I had to do all the pre-op stuff, and I have to you have to not wear contacts for the week before your procedure. So I've been, you know, wearing glasses and getting ready. And I am very, very excited.
0: That's awesome. What is your um, vision issue?
1: Um, so I am nearsighted. So I have a okay. hard time seeing far away. Okay. And that's what that's actually what Lasik's for. They told me that, you know, in a few years, like by the time I'm 45, I'll probably need readers. But yeah. at least I won't have to be doing bifocals, you know? Oh,
0: totally. So- because let me tell you, I have the same issue. And so I have two Readers, or I, ha- I have to wear readers, but then I also have s- completely different glasses for like driving and just general life. And the result is because it's so hard and difficult, I just don't wear either, you know,
1: oh, yeah,
0: um, or I'll just wear the readers because I can't read things. Um, so I end up not wearing my normal glasses because I'm always putting readers on and off. So to be able, I mean, I'm tempted to try to do LASIK, too, just to fix that issue so I don't, I'm don't. i not juggling two glasses.
1: Right. Yeah. And I have – like, I can't drive unless I have contacts or glasses in, um, and it's hard for me. And I, I guess my prescription isn't that bad, but everyone's just a little bit blurry. Yeah. I was uh, lifting weights today, and um, every time I bent over to pick up a weight, my glasses would fall off my head. So I tried lifting weights without them, and it was really difficult just because mm. – you know, I don't know, like your depth perception is all uh, yeah. worked. But I didn't realize all the things that you have to do. Like, you can't work out for a week. You can't do XYZ for two weeks. You can't do XYZ after a month. So, um, I'm glad I'm getting it done. I'm really looking forward to it. Although, if you watch the YouTube videos on it, it oh, is. I would never. Frightening. You know, it's frightening. I uh, never.
0: <laughs> I never watch YouTube videos. Like, when I had my. Um, Rotor rooter of my sinuses you know i mm-hmm. had the uh what do you call it the turbinate reduction and all of that like so many people were like just you know what even my doctor was like just you know watch a video so you can see what's happening and i'm like i will never watch a video of that ever
1: they lift <laughs> like the top flap of my they like laser it and lift the flap back Ugh. and then laser it and then put it back down the flap's supposed to heal and they like hold your head in place and they give you like a valium so you don't lose your mind you oh, know are you awake
0: you're... yeah
1: what yeah yeah the actually the ex- they said the actual procedure is only 15 minutes long but you have to be there and get the valium or whatever right and make sure that you're not going to fight or freak out. And because they say that happens sometimes. Oh, I'm sure it does. I would probably be that person. <laughs> so, and she said, you know, when you come, bring some like nighttime Advil so you can just pop sub and then sleep because the first six hours after, I guess, are excruciating. So you want to sleep through that? Yikes! And I was like, nighttime Advil, that is some um, rookie stuff. I will I will bring some better stuff. I yeah. will I will not be conscious at all the rest totally. of the day. So uh yes, that's 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 that. So
0: mm, I'll let you know good. how it goes. Yeah, I'm anxious to hear how it goes. Yes. And how
1: about you? How's your self care doing?
0: Well, this has not been the best couple of days. I actually was up most of the night last night. Oh no. Um and I feel like a broken record, but our – you know, this is this is just – this is where my self-care is at. Our school district has just not really provided an alternative – a good alternative for kids who don't want to go back to school in person. They decided last week that they were sending all of the kids back, um, either this week or next, depending on their grade. And I feel really uncomfortable with it. I'm not alone. We have teachers who are petitioning not to go back. Our teachers union actually filed a cease and desist um, to the district. So it's just, it's it's very fraught. Um, Parents are not feeling good. Some teachers are not feeling good. Now, mind you, there's a lot of parents and teachers who also are like, the kids back in the classroom immediately you know right um the problem though with our district and i feel like there's a lot of other districts that are figuring out how like kids who want to stay home can stay home or they can zoom in you know ours did not do that and so our option is to go back to school in person or they can disenroll from their school and do an online school that's been created using Florida Virtual School platform where they would not have access to any of their activities, any of their normal classes. So for example, if I pull my kids out of their school and I put them in this separate online school, India will no longer be able to be in ASB, which she tried out for this year and was super excited to be in. She won't. She's in a drama Zoom production. She'll have to pull from that She's taking dance this year. She'll have to pull from that. She's taking guitar. Um, Every single kid has like massive losses if I pull them. You know, Jafta is in – he's in high school. He's, you know, on – he's in two different classes that are kind of cumulative that build on each other. Um, One is a music production class. He's taking piano this year. He's – his football team is not – playing yet, but they're conditioning, social distanced, and being really careful. So I feel comfortable with that because that's outside and distance versus inside an old classroom that was built in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I mean, I just, every, every kid, there. there's like four to five losses for each kid. Right. And I recognize that we all have to make sacrifices and things are going to be lost in the middle of a pandemic. Where I'm really struggling is the fact that these things are going on for other kids. But what my district has done for health vulnerable families, it feels like is just to kind of like push us off into a corner and give us the very bare minimum. Yeah, your SOL. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I know you have a kid with food allergies, but I can't help thinking about – I remember a couple years ago there were a lot of debates in our school system around peanut allergies Mm -hmm. and whether or not we should just make a blanket rule that says nobody brings peanuts to school or if we should just make all the kids with peanut allergies sit at a separate table. And I remember being horrified that – we would set kids at a separate table. And I remember really fighting saying, you know what? My kids love peanut butter. I think we can live without it because I don't want to relegate these kids to a separate table. And I feel like metaphorically, like we're being sat at the peanut butter table. Like right. our school district is just like, no, just go over there. You can get your math and science, you know, and you, you know, you there's no clubs, there's no, none of the things you actually love about school and it's for the whole year. Yeah. And... It just – it sucks. And it feels like, you know, kids in health-vulnerable families have already lost so much. Like, you know, we're, we are the kids that aren't actually going places and aren't getting together. And, and now they're just going to lose even more. And I just feel super crappy about it.
1: I don't understand why they can't just still let them do clubs, though, because I know I – know. I- in lots of towns, let's say you withdraw your kid and you're homeschooling, they're still supposed to have access to the town activities and clubs within those schools. So uh, what I've seen is like, let's say there's cross country at a school. As long as you're zoned for that district, even if you are not enrolled in that school, you can run cross country. So if you're a homeschooler, you can run cross country for the school right. that you're zoned for. So I don't understand why, why they're not like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Wouldn't a, a reasonable solution to be, be okay, you have to do this, like, online virtual thing, but you can still do clubs? Well, the problem
0: – one of the problems is that most clubs we, – we go to a great school, too, which is also why I'm super frustrated that we're having to pull out of this school. Our school – most middle and high schools have six periods. Ours has eight. And so clubs are classes, and sports uh, are classes. So you have to be enrolled in the school to take part in most of those things. If that makes I, sense. I, yeah,
1: it makes sense. But I, I just it just seems like if they were going to make any exceptions, now would be that time. I agree. I, I feel – and
0: many parents – I mean, I am not alone. There are – I mean, there's a petition with a thousand signatures on it. Like, many parents are upset and they just – the, the feeling is that they just don't care and that they're just trying to push our kids off into a corner. Right. Like, just take right. your kids and your health concerns. Because also, I will say, I think a number of the board members just kind of think the whole coronavirus thing is a joke. You know, mm-hmm. there's those people. Of course. Who, you know, I'm not going to live in fear. You know, not that any of us are doing that. But, you know, life has to go on back to normal. And I mean, the irony, too, for me is they keep talking about the mental health of the kids. We have to send the kids back for their mental health. But when they're saying that they're only talking about kids from non, non, like health vulnerable families, because it is super clear. They do not care about my kids' mental health.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, clearly they're, it's wild to me that these districts are willing to sort of sacrifice uh, a segment of people for the sake of normalcy for everyone else. Yeah,
0: that's right. And that's what's happening. And, you know, it's really sad. I I will say, I mean, you know, people have been arguing about this in our town's Facebook groups, which Mm. I know, you know, town Facebook groups tend not to attract like (laughs) the best of any given location. But I cannot tell you how many people are like, if you don't like it, stay home. Like, that's the attitude. If you don't like it, stay home. If you don't like it, homeschool, you know? Like, I just, the feeling that I'm getting from my community and my school board is... Too bad. Sucks for you guys.
1: Well, that's what we're seeing across the nation, right? You're this, right. like, lack of community care. It's yeah, all about, right. like, I don't have to wear a mask. Yeah. I'm not responsible for you. Where other countries, it's this, like, community-minded, village-minded, we're all in this together. Right. And I feel like that's that's lacking here. And I'm I'm sorry. That sucks. I hope you guys, I hope they come up with a good resolution for you. Um, I, I, I don't think they will. I don't think they will.
0: I... I mean, it's super fresh. I was literally up till midnight, like, weighing this out. And, like, at midnight, because the deadline was this
1: morning, at midnight. Oh, my God. Filled out the paperwork to pull my kids. Yeah.
0: Out of their school.
1: Yeah, that's awful. Yeah, it's bad. I'm so sorry. It's really
0: bad. And they're, you know, and then they're super bummed and... I'm the one making this decision, so they're bumped at me. Yeah, of course. Right. Right. And they're watching all their friends still go to school. That's what's so frustrating. You know, so-and-so is still doing dramas. All, you know, the whole football team's still doing football. Like, everyone else is still doing their stuff. And the Howerton kids are not. You know? They're being pulled out of everything, so.
1: Uh, Yeah, I... I don't even know what to say. That's so hard. We're, we have a little bit of that going on because, you know, I chose to homeschool the girls. Yeah. But they're younger, so it's not as – it's not as um,
0: – Yeah. Yeah, and I think that this is – I think it's uniquely difficult for high school. And that's the part that frustrates me so much is, you know, I mean, the CDC just came out with new data. It's like we know that older kids spread it more. Mm -hmm. And I feel like high school kids, I totally get that a lot of kids need to be in school. And I I get the reason that we need to have in-person school for some kids. But like high school kids, there needs to be a lot of options because they don't all need to be in physical school. Mm -hmm. A lot of them could be learning from home. And, you know, just to take a kid out and, and give them just a basic, like, I feel like the the virtual school they're being signed up for is basically the equivalence of a GED, you know, where it's just like your basic, basic stripped down education. And to pull kids out of, you know, like JAPT is in an ROP music production class. Like to pull kids out of things that are, you know, maybe a part of their college major or, you know, dual enrollment classes, AP classes. It's It sucks for a lot of kids, not just mine.
1: Yeah, I l- I hope that there are, you know, massive protests. Yeah, for- there
0: have been. There have been. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's where I'm at. I'm not not in the very best place. Um Yeah, no, I don't blame you. Yeah. Yeah, and it is it is um as you said, it is just a frustrating dynamic to watch this kind of happening happening nationwide where we're just seeing like, wow, we're really selfish.
1: <laughs> or hey, it's just old people dying. Oh, yeah. so just so just f old people then? Like no,
0: oh cool. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll just kill our grandparents. Mm. <laughs> mm. Oh, I know. I mean, or people being like, well, the people that are dying had underlying conditions anyway. Like
1: okay, but they wouldn't have died. I hate yeah. I hate that argument. And I read some sort of analogy which seems a little crass, but it works. It's like saying that. <laughs> Fifty percent of the people in the twin towers had a pre-existing condition, totally. and that's what killed them. Not not the planes going into the building.
0: Totally, it, it is. It is the same. I mean, I have asthma. I would never die from asthma. Nobody dies from asthma, right? But like, if I get COVID, my outcomes could be a lot worse. Like, right? People right. are not, you know, just because someone has an underlying health condition doesn't mean that they were going to die anyway. They probably right. were not. Anyway, oh, let's talk about two thumbs up. What what are you liking? Well, right now? I've
1: got I've got one that's relevant. So okay. I was reading an article that was a little bit scary, but I thought it was at least you know at least a little bit measured. Uh, did you see it going around? It was um, maybe a few weeks ago. The most likely way you'll get infected with COVID nineteen. Oh, yes. That was a good one. Yeah, and so um, so I read it, and after well let me let me read this part to you. Um, essentially. Because it's getting colder, especially like the part of the country I'm in, um, the risk is a little bit higher because we're not outdoors. You know, when we're spending time with people, we're not outdoors. So this is a quote from the article. Aerosol transmission explains why indoor settings are so much more important and contribute, to so, mu- contribute so much more to new infections than outdoor settings do. Yeah. Armed with this knowledge, think about how you can make fall and winter safer, both physically and mentally. Instead of buying another can of Lysol, maybe invest in an air purifier, more comfortable two-ply cloth masks, or even an outdoor fire pit or space heater. Be prepared to meet friends outside in colder temperatures or insist upon masks, even in your home. So before, we were all, like, spraying our Amazon packages, right? Right. Or, like, leaving them outside for a few days. And they're saying, it's not really this, like, touch transmission where Mm -hmm. you touch a table and I touch a table. They're saying it's aerosol transmission. So... Then I read another article from a local hospital, and it says that they um, predict that air purifiers and humidifiers are going to go the way toilet paper did. I bet. So, they already have uh, out here. Oh, over so, well, of the fires, right? right so I, yeah. I ended up buying um, – be- because, you know, I have, I have two – two of my kids are asthmatic. So I ended up yeah. buying – air purifiers and humidifiers. Mm-hmm. And right now, a lot of them are out of stock on Amazon. So I am linking in the show notes three that are reasonably priced. And you want to make sure that you have one with, I believe it's called pronounced HEPA, like a HEPA filter. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm i going to have those going um, fall and winter, especially because we have the heat on and things get drier. And there's this whole you know article about how the dry heat, contributes to the spread of COVID and maybe I'm in too deep, but if nothing else, an air air purifier can't hurt. So if you were thinking about buying one, I suggest you buy one now sooner rather than later. Um, or, you know, get one for your parents or someone, someone in your life that you think could use one. Um, the other thing I have is very nerdy.
0: Nerdy?
1: Yes, okay. uh, it is. It is a self-inking date stamp. So um, there are a couple things that I like that make me feel like that are small, but just make me feel better about life. For example, I love opening letters with a letter opener. Because it just seems so civilized, you know, yes. as opposed to just, like, ripping it open. It feels so fancy. It does feel fancy. I very much enjoy it. Because um, then I always, like, destroy the envelope otherwise. So a self-inking date stamp, all it does is that you push it down on paper and it dates the paper for you. But with homeschooling, you know, I'm putting together all the girls portfolio stuff? Or do they write this essay today? And they could be dating things. But you know how you'll just like go through worksheets. And I just go through and I just date stamp everything. So a bill came in. And for whatever reason, this company is archaic and won't do it online. I just date stamp it. So we know when it came in, we know when to pay it. So I am date stamping everything. I'm date stamping mail and I'm date stamping worksheets. And for whatever reason, it just makes me feel like I have better control of the papers in my life. I feel
0: like you're just basically being a retro secretary at this point. Like this is very analog. Like you're sitting. I'm imagining you sitting at a desk with your letter opener and your date stamp. And while well, I'm wearing a, pe- I'm wearing a pencil nose.
1: skirt. Yes, a yeah. pencil skirt. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fetching whiskey for all the men in the office. Totally.
0: That's really funny. Um, how
1: about you? What are your two thumbs up for the week? Okay, my two are are
0: food related. Oh, good. Hit me. <laughs> Mine are snack related. Okay. Have you um have you ever had like like um chickpeas as like a crunchy snack?
1: No. Well, no. I've had the chickpea pasta. Okay. And I've had roasted chickpeas, but that's Yeah, like scent. roasted
0: chickpeas where you can buy them as a snack.
1: Right. So anyway, I really
0: like those. I've liked those for a long time. And there is a company that's now making lentils the same way. So like, you know, little brown lentils that you would like make lentil soup of. Sure. They have like fried them Mm. and put flavoring on them. And they're really delicious.
1: Wait, so are they – how do you eat them? With like a spoon or are you just picking them up like little grains of rice? You you could
0: eat them with a spoon because they're so small. But no, you just eat them like you'd eat sesame seeds, you know. You just put some in your hand and – and, is that's uh, how
1: you eat sesame seeds? Yeah. How do you eat sesame seeds? I sprinkle it on something. I'm Feels sorry. Like I mean topping. sunflower
0: seeds. Oh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Too small. Okay. Got all, it. All very small things, but <laughs> sesame yeah, – no, like sunflower seeds. Like, you know how you would just – if they were shelled or pistachios, you would right, just Right, right. Put, put some in a handful and eat them. I um, like that. So they're called – the company's called Mighty Lil Lentils. But this is also the same company, if you've ever had those – They make a product where it's edamame like this. Yes. So it's that same company. Um, But they have a bunch of different flavors. Barbecue is really good, but they have a falafel flavor Oh, that I am in love with. So anyway, it's a nice little, you know, protein snack. Um, Oh, it's because
1: it's high in protein, of course, because they're lentils. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't think
0: they're actually fried fried. I think they're, you know, kind of like, I don't know. I don't know what the methodology is, but it's healthy. Got it. And my kids love them too. And then um, I am trying a new collagen drink. I've been trying to take collagen um, because I'm having all kinds of gut issues. Um, mm. I'm sure stress related. Yeah, of course. Um, but collagen is supposed to really help, and you know it's also really good for your skin and your hair and your nails and all that. Um, but there is a new one that I've been trying. It's Hudson and James collagen. And first of all, the packaging is very cute, which, you know.
1: Well, it sounds like a fashion line. I know, oh, right? Hudson, Hudson and James. James. Like,
0: yes. I have a new Hudson and James handbag. Right. Um, but anyway, this one takes, tastes like pink lemonade, and it's actually really good. Sometimes collagen, I find, can taste a little funky.
1: Well, when people say, oh, it, it's tasteless, just put it in your coffee and like you're a liar I don't think it's not tasteless tasteless. okay
0: no I don't think it's tasteless and I actually think that the tartness of a pink lemonade actually hides the flavor really well oh good and then I feel more motivated to drink it because it actually tastes good like I'll just mix it up and it'll be like I'm drinking a pink lemonade but my collagens are in there so I've been trying to take that every day cartridges, a cute little magnetic hook for your shower storage, and your choice of a handle color. I personally chose the Coral, but what I really like about it is they have a ton of different colors, black, white, pastel, neon. So if you have a big family like mine, everyone can have the razor in their own color so you don't get them confused. What I also love about Athena Club, you guys know I love automating things. You never have to worry about dull blades because they send refills on your schedule. You just choose how often you want them and they will send them automatically with free shipping. I would also highly recommend their cloud shave foam too. It's insanely thick and stays on while you shave so you don't have to reapply. It leaves your skin feeling very moisturized. It's Tritinuin stimulates collagen production to prevent and treat signs of premature skin aging from years of sun damage, things like fine lines and wrinkles, dark spots, uneven skin tone, and big pores. anywhere. That's S-E-L-F-I-E to get 15% off your first order at dearbrightly.com. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors. One of my peripheral challenges of this whole distance learning thing has been figuring out how to feed my kids. Because Honestly, I really relied on them eating at school during the school year. Nurture Life is a great solution for busy parents. They are a meal delivery service just for kids and families. They make delicious meals that kids actually like with the right nutrition and portion sizes for every age group. They have a really extensive range of meals that includes finger foods for babies that are just learning to self-feed. They have toddler and kid meals and they even have teen and adult meals and shareable family meals. Every one of their meals includes a full serving of vegetables and focuses on organic produce, antibiotic-free proteins, and whole grains. Their meals are crafted by chefs and dietitians, so you're getting good taste and balanced nutrition. For example, they have a mac and cheese with whole wheat and butternut squash blended right into the cheese. As a subscriber, you save on weekly meals and you get great discounts, and it's really flexible. You can skip weeks, pause, or cancel whenever you need, and food is showing up right at your door, ready when you need it. Nurture Life also has some fun limited time meals like butter chicken with peas, rice and mini naan and Japanese inspired chicken and vegetable noodles. It's really easy to order through their very user friendly website. They're offering us a limited time discount. You can go to nurture.life slash selfie and use the promo code SELFIE to get 30% off your first two orders. Again, that's promo code SELFIE to get 30% off your first two orders at nurture.life selfie.
2: Hi guys, I'm BJ and in my private practice as an emotional wellness coach, we address trauma, attachment wounds, and the roles they play in how we show up in our lives today. I have found my self-care has a profound impact on my mental health. So I'm here to invite you into the journey of emotional self-care. As if 2020 didn't have enough going on, we've still got a presidential election to wrap up here in the next couple of months. The question I got this week was how do we navigate election season with family and friends whose political views differ when some members of your family are very liberal and the others are very conservative and you fall somewhere in the middle and are sick of them fighting about why the other is wrong and misinformed? I think it's important to disclose if you haven't figured it out already. I have a bleeding heart and I lead with it. And also it informs my politics. A few weeks after the 2016 election, I learned my dearest lifelong ride-or-die best friend voted for Trump. I know she's a Republican, but I naively assumed she would never have voted for him. And I blundered my way into a conversation with that assumption one day. One of the things I absolutely love most about her is that she never hesitates to tell me exactly how she feels about something, even if she knows I'll disagree. It took me a minute to recover, but I did pretty quickly because at the end of the day, the thing we both knew was that there had never been anything that could change the way we felt about each other in over 45 years of friendship. And this was not going to be the first thing. I know there are people who have given up friendships and relationships with family members over politics. I have absolutely no judgment about that. It's not who I am, but I also have really strong boundaries with some close family members that if they'd not existed before this election season, they absolutely would have been put in place by now. One of the saddest things about our current culture to me is there's been a significant loss in our ability to disagree without fighting. I feel like polarizing is the only word that can be used to describe our current political season. And when the issues you value feel like life or death issues, it's hard not to feel desperate to convince others to see and vote your way. But the truth is, most people are going to vote however they're going to vote. Arguably, who's to say this campaign won't be decided by those who are in the middle at this point? But those are not the difficult conversations. So how much energy do you want to spend trying to convince someone to change their minds when the odds are exceptionally out of your favor that they ever will? I'm not saying don't be vocal or campaign for your cause. I think that's vitally important. I am saying if you have someone in your life whose political views are the polar opposite of yours and they feel as strongly about their beliefs as you do about yours, what value are you finding in the argument? My girlfriend and I agreed to just not talk about politics, which honestly has never been one of our preferred topics of conversation anyway. We live 1,600 miles apart, so our talks are usually very personal or about family and work, so this really hasn't been a hard transition for us. However, this past year, she has asked me a couple of times just to offer my point of view on some things because she was having a hard time seeing the other side. I love that because she trusts me to give her a fair and objective response, and I never feel the need to convince her I'm right. I just focus on what it is she's trying to learn, rather than my own agenda. This has actually been easy for me to do because I've found that the news outlets on both sides are not super interested in truth-telling. While the most extreme conservative outlets have been found guilty of promoting conspiracy theories and and distributing misleading, outdated headlines as though they're current, the left's bias tends towards information elimination. They tell the story they want us to focus on and take the attention away from things they'd rather we ignore. In the pandemic, I've learned I have to conserve my energy significantly because I'm finding I simply don't have the bandwidth if I don't. That's my self-care. A few months ago, I came across a chart that I've asked Kristen to include in today's show notes. I'll also put it on the Selfie Community page. It's got five columns, and the far right and far left columns list all the news outlets that are far right and far left. They're basically editorial outlets, all biased opinions. I appreciate knowing a speaker's bias, so that's awesome. Tells me where they're coming from. At this point, I don't waste my time with those outlets. The columns left and right of center are left-leaning and right-leaning outlets. Not without bias, but focused more on information than opinion. I receive notifications from a couple of the left-leaning outlets, so I see stories from them on a daily basis. The center column is a list of primarily nonpartisan, non-biased outlets. It includes NPR, the Associated Press, the Wall Street Journal, among others. If I read a story from one of the left- or right-leaning outlets, before I share it with anyone, I will fact-check it through one of the center outlets. I'm sharing this resource because it's helped me to keep my sanity, to know that what I'm reading and trusting, at least to the best of my knowledge, is true. Also, Corey, who asked the question, it might be a good tool for you to use with your family members who are so at odds with one another. If they pull you in the middle, you can either direct them to the chart, or if you're so inclined, look up the facts on what they're arguing about. Settle the argument, drop the mic, walk away. (laughs) Listen, just two months and it'll all be behind us. So hang in there love one another, lean into empathy, and if all else fails, go to YouTube and find the video of Snoop Dogg singing Let It Go in his car a couple of weeks into the pandemic. (laughs) Maybe I'll post that in the community group too. You're going to love it. See you there.
0: Hey Drew, thanks so much for joining us.
3: No, thanks, Kristen. I'm glad to be here and dialogue with you.
0: I wanted to see if we could start with talking about the differences between individual racism or personal racism versus structural racism or systemic racism. Because I think a lot of people get a little confused on what systemic racism really is.
3: Yeah, no, I, I think one of the things I often tell folks is, you know, so like in Pennsylvania, I'll give. Uh, geographically uh, based example, though this is a common story in other places as well, in some forms. Maybe it's a little bit different each place. But the example I give is how um, funding works in Pennsylvania. Uh, we already have a huge problem across the country in terms of how um, taxes from your home, right, basically mm-hmm. funds mm-hmm. Um, public education in different regions so that already, which most people around the world think that's just horrifying. Like, why yeah. would you do that? but it's in a system that allows to perpetuate wealth and advantages yeah. um, and pass that on and keep other people excluded. Right. And so yeah. it makes sense in our country why we do that. But on top of that problem, then in Pennsylvania for a very long time, we didn't even have a fear funding formula from the state. So like the state provides about 35, 40% of funding to the school districts, And so for a long time, we didn't have a fair funding formula and there was a really racist way in which these funds were being distributed, right? It's mm-hmm. Not to get about anybody's personal intents at this point anymore. This, right. it's been going on for decades, right? Right. Um, and so what they found was that the more people of color in a school district, the more likely that they were going to be underfunded by the state and the more white people in a school district, the more they're going to be overfunded by the state. Mm-hmm. So. Not a few years ago, we finally got the state to get to adopt a fair funding formula. And it was really faith-based organizing that actually uh, made that happen. But um, the state, what they did was they they increased their budget by, I think it was like 8% and um, put the new money through the the, like the 8% went through the fair funding formula and the rest of the money stayed the same. So basically it was... I call it a confession of guilt more than it is actually trying to fix the problem. Right. right. And so now, I mean, these are systemic policy problems. Um, this is not about people hating people because of the color of their skin. Like no mm-hmm. one's even, it's just, it's automatic. So long as this policy doesn't get changed, the mm-hmm. legislation doesn't get changed. This is going to continue to impact people all across the state. So in Harrisburg where I live, 50% black um, uh, city, large Latinx community as well. Mm-hmm. Like, we would get 30 million dollars a year more if the fair funding formula yeah. was fully being used it's a, it's significant and this oh, is a yeah. school that's been struggling um year after year usually a little behind budget literally mm-hmm. we got taken over by the state because it was mm-hmm. um failing our the children right and so these are the kind of systemic structural issues but we could look at mass incarceration we could look at housing we could look at healthcare mm-hmm. um livable wages all kinds of stuff and see yeah. that there's systemic structural issues policies that need to be addressed
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned the role of faith based, you know, activists and action in changing some of some of those things for Christians who want to be more involved in, in, you know, maybe this, this deeper work. Um, what's a jumping off place? What, you know, how do Christians get involved in a way that is, that is really moving that needle forward?
3: Yeah. Um, first, I, I would say is that we've got to become students of the different ways mm-hmm. that there are different uh, methods uh, yes. for social change right? that are yes. available to us. Um, I'm always shocked at mainstream conversations, even around things around like nonviolence, because mm-hmm. there's a perception that we've got to become more violent because this nonviolent stuff doesn't work. Ironically, the interesting fact is that social scientists have shown the exact opposite: is that nonviolence is actually more effective than mm-hmm. um, violence resistance, mm-hmm. Um as if it sustains and strategic yes. and um, active. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and and but the term nonviolence sometimes gets used just to replace talking about marches. Uh, right. When. When really what it's, that's not strategic, right? That's right. You, all we're doing is marching and rally, marching, rally. There's nothing right. strategic about that. Um, non-violence is supposed to be strategic, usually mm-hmm. escalating campaigns right. that um, and mobilizing mass mobilization to get as many people to address it. And what they say is that all you need is 3.5% of the population. And mm. like these movements are like guaranteed pretty much to, to win if it's sustained and active, right? Right. Organizing, on the other hand, is about power building on the ground at the grassroots level. So letting um, the community hear, uh, voice their own concerns, um, Mm -hmm. identify the main things that they want to address and organizing and building power, not from the top down, but bottom power. Right, Um, Building local power and addressing very concrete issues one at a time trying mm-hmm. to go to the power brokers and address those issues, usually a little more through formal channels than maybe movement work does. Usually what I tell people, though, especially for faith-based organize, like figure out who's doing the work already in the community, right? Yes. There's always a yes. danger, uh, and not only white churches, but especially white churches, right, yes. with the savior complex to just oh, for to sure, reduplicate the wheel. And right. I think that we've got to figure out who's already doing this work. How do people, especially if you haven't been doing the work, how do you learn to follow and spend some good time um, just joining in and following orders and put, you know, um, put some elbow grease in before you start making suggestions about what needs to be done. Yes.
0: Yes. And listening and making sure that, you know, the organizations you're, you are, you know, putting your weight behind have black leadership and are not just, as you mentioned, like an attempt at, you know, sort of a white savior. You know, we're going to come in and right, swoop help everyone. in. Yeah. I think a lot of people might be really surprised, unfortunately, surprised to know how many organizations are out there. I think for a lot of white Christians who are just being introduced or white people in general who are just being introduced to this movement, they may be looking at it and going, okay, so I can either join Black Lives Matter, the organization, or, you know, like they might think that's the only option. And then there's, you know, lots of Christian propaganda, unfortunately, going around about like why, you know, Black Lives Matter is Marxist or they're, right. you know, they're not pro-life or they're LGBTQ affirming. Um, and therefore, we, you know, we can't do that. And I, I think people may not understand how many faith-based, you know, organizations there are available for people to get behind if that organization is not one that they're comfortable with.
3: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say a big one that I really want to push on a national level, there's an organization called Faith in Action. It mm-hmm. used to be called PICO. Now it's Faith in Action. And they actually are an umbrella organization, which a lot of other faith-based organizers, organizations kind of work with under them in different places. So yeah, under Faith in Action, like here in Pennsylvania, we have Power Interfaith, right? Um, and so I've done some work with Power Interfaith. I know some of the leaders in um, Faith in Action, but but like on a local level, it's mm-hmm. power that I've been engaging in. And so, yeah, people can figure out who are those organizers. Um, and there's lots of others, and there are some other big umbrella organizations as well that uh, people, um, collaborate with. Um, so people got to do some homework, right? Do some yeah. research and figure out who's there. I would say though that no matter what, um, if we're really committed to our community, we're going to have to be comfortable partnering and collaborating with a whole variety of people, yes. regardless of whether they match up 100% with our ideology, our that's faith, right. whatever, right? That's right. Um, and so we can collaborate at points of interest in, in agreement and agreements yep. and and also learn from folks, right? I mean, I've learned so much from my Muslim brothers and sisters who I yeah. collaborate with all the time. I appreciate them. I'm glad that they're there. And so there's an actually really meaningful way in which uh, exchange can happen in those spaces and we can be inspired and encouraged with, with one another. And that's without me diminishing being i show up fully as a follower of jesus everywhere i go yeah. um everyone knows who i am i don't have this, there's sometimes there's this perceptions right that you have to like erase who you are in these spaces no you show up fully as you are mm-hmm. um um but also allow other people to be fully who they are as well yeah. and, and and we can collaborate and i think that's precisely when we understand what it means to pursue the common good where everyone can flourish out of that situation
0: yeah i completely agree i mean i think we as christians you know we have Figured out a way to partner with other Christians who hold very different theological views. You know, we right. can, as Protestants and Catholics, get together even though we have very different theologies on, um, you know, Mary, and we can get together with people who are uh, pre-millennial or post-millennial, like they're you know, or who believe in water baptism or don't. Like Christians are able to partner with people that they disagree with theologically, but yet there seems to be this real block um, when it comes to. LGBT or, you know, um, and so I, I agree completely that I think if we're really committed to this work, there are times that, that we have to just partner with people who we don't agree with theologically because we do that all the time. Right. We, we, do we really do do that all the
3: time. And the fact of the matter is we're talking about our neighbors, our, our community, mm-hmm. like these are people that, so it's only like somehow we've segmented in our minds that only in matters of faith that somehow, um, yeah. We have nothing to do with anybody else. But yes. then we interact with people all the time. Hopefully you do, right? Hopefully we all yeah. interact with folks. But some people, maybe they're not, right? Um, yeah. I don't know. But, but I think what does it mean to be fully human the way that mm-hmm. God desires for us to be and to see our shared humanity with everyone, it's not just shared humanity with followers of Jesus shared humanity yes. with everyone. Cause we're all made in the image of God. We all yes. have dignity because of that. We're all worthy and valuable. Um, and Absolutely. some of what we learned from the black Li- black lives matter movement is precisely that, right. That we need yeah. to value everybody, see their worth, recognize their dignity and treat people as such.
0: Well, absolutely. And I mean, ultimately, I think a lot of the um, the philosophies of the Black Lives Matter movement that are speaking to that are being twisted and bastardized by Christians as some, like, anti-family, you know, when really right. what they're saying is, we affirm familial differences, or we affirm right. non-traditional right. households. Exactly. Um, right. They're all included, you know, right. we're taking a village approach. And I think there's a, a whole lot of twisting. <laughs>
3: A lot of twisting. I, I was just having a conversation the other day. Someone was saying that, you know, they're cultural Marxists, right? I'm right. Like, I'm like, what, what, it, I mean, how do we even respond to these generic statements? I'm like, look, I'm not, I, as someone like, I don't ad- identify as Marxist. Though, to be fair, like, I have some really good friends who do, Black yeah. Marxists. And honestly, they're some of the most genuine people I know, right? Sure but I haven't read Marx. I don't get my inspiration from Marx. But if I'm going to make a critique about something, then be specific about what we mean by that. (laughs) Because when we just make these blanket statements, it's almost like McCarthyism. Oh, he's a cop, right? Um, And that's what it creates that kind of fear. And it allows people to have a justification to deflect and deter and not take anyone seriously. No, be very specific. So is it like, are we worried about Marxism in terms of like the narrative and ideological narrative that maybe is incompatible with how we understand as Christians. Sure. All right. We can have that conversation, mm-hmm. but like if it's because there's a power analysis or because right. of the economic critique, like, have you read the gospel of Luke? Like that's <laughs> what I want to know to folks, right? Like yes. Jesus has a devastating economic critique and class consciousness that makes yeah. me uncomfortable. And uh, I, can, I can be kind of <laughs> radical at times, but I read the gospel of Luke. I'm like, Oh damn, is he talking about me? Like, yeah. you know, Um, And so I think that there's just something strange about the way that we make these comments, but it's, it's a way of dismissing and not taking um, folks seriously. And that that means that too many Christians are not uh, dialoguing in good faith.
0: I completely agree. I I think that you just, that's exactly it. It's not dialoguing in good faith. It's, it's picking a word that sounds scary and then dismissing the whole thing without any engagement, without really asking any questions. And You know, if people wanted to dial into a study of Marxism and what that really means, I think that there are a whole lot of scriptures that might look a little Marxist, if we're being honest.
3: Right. I mean, it's I I always joke. In fact, in my new book, I have a chapter on like economics and the racial wealth gap in particular. But I start I start off at least a portion of it. I have like quoting early Christians because they're devastating. I mean, they're like you know, if you've got more and someone else hasn't eaten, like you've stolen from the poor. Yeah. Um, and so like they very radical critique that does not, it's not compatible with uh, capitalism as we understand yes. it. So I think yeah. that um, we don't need Marx to get there to make these kind no. of critiques, but mm-hmm. if somebody engages, Mar- I mean, from what I understand is Marx, um, even people who don't just wholesale internalize all of Marx is that he's helpful in a lot of different ways, even if you disagree with him on some things. And I think that's how we ought to, we ought to read everyone critically and carefully. Um, and so the no different with Marx, let's be serious yeah. dialoguers if we're going to be naming him, right? If I'm going to yeah. name Marx, then I better have read Marx first before yeah. I start criticizing and call people Marxists as a yes. reason to dismiss them.
0: Yeah. 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 And I, and I think, you know, I think it's one quote from one of the leaders that's been taking massively out of context, which is that they were trained in some of the ideology and some of the ideology is about social reform, you know, right. and, and that's ultimately what's, you know, where they're being informed is that social reform and, and, you know, critiquing social structure structures and critiquing wealth inequality and all that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, we should all be doing. We
3: should all have a problem with yeah. massive poverty and yeah. inequality and who has access. And uh, yeah. I mean, we can come up with maybe different answers exactly how to address these things. But if we're not concerned with these things at all, then I would say there's something domesticated about our understanding of Jesus that we have to take seriously.
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned your book, and that new book is Who Will Be a Witness?
3: Yeah, Who Will Be a Witness. And then the subtitle, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance.
0: Yeah, and that is a great book for people who, you know, that we're talking about, maybe Christians who are saying, like, I want to get more involved in this, but I don't even really understand it at all. Um, that's a really good book. And then your previous book, Trouble I've Seen, was more focused on the church.
3: Yeah, in some ways, they both are targeting the church, right? Yeah. The first one is like anti-racism. Anti- yeah. What does it mean for us to understand what what, it, what white supremacy, racial hierarchy is all about? Mm-hmm. How does it function systemically? How do we think about it as followers of Jesus, right? Kind of anti-racist mm-hmm. discipleship. Yeah, And then the next one like launches from there to say, you know, um, what does it mean to awaken to our moments and actually get involved in this change? And in yeah. fact, some of the reason why I wrote it was, so I'm like talking to churches and congregations and I, I got mostly really good responses from the book, but sometimes they would say like, all right, so you're calling us to do justice. You know, what does that mean? What does that look like? Mm. You know, and I'm thinking like, okay, you know, maybe we need to back it up a little we need bit the handbook. Right? <laughs> and, and and help them. And I ended up not doing like a handbook. Yeah. Um, in fact, most of it is still, I only get to the very practical stuff at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really frame a uh, radical discipleship because I, I, I think, um, we have such a domesticated understanding of Jesus. It's yes. so domesticated and watered down and diluted. And so I, I actually spend two chapters trying to help us see Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then do some history on the history of Christendom and colonialism, white supremacy, mm-hmm. do some stuff in terms of the internal life of the church and its worship life and how it relates to justice. Mm-hmm. And then I turn more externally in terms of um, nonviolent stuff, getting much deeper into some of the stuff that we began to talk about earlier, yeah. organizing. Uh, movement theory electoral politics a whole bunch of stuff um, yeah so that way uh, people know what they're getting into have some language and frameworks um, to enter into this work and also to discern what will be helpful for their own congregations so it's not me yes. giving them answers per se yeah. but just kind of laying out the 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 field, I guess, so to yeah. speak. Yeah.
0: Well, and the theology too, which is great. Yeah, I mean, you're, absolutely. you know, you're really laying a foundation um, for people to understand. Um, and I think, you know, I think so much of this ultimately comes down to us taking that deeper look at Jesus, take, taking that deeper look at not just what we've been raised with and the stories and narratives that we were raised with in the American church, but like, what was this guy really about? You know, what was he really preaching outside of what we know from our church experience? And it's, it is pretty radical.
3: It's very radical. I mean, I just, I tell people, man, sit with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and take those seriously. Yeah. Um, You can't really come out status quo. Like, I don't understand. It's so interesting that, um, in fact, this is one of the things I argue in the second, like, somehow the church has like made Jesus into like a mascot for the status quo. Yeah. Like that's really what he's become for the whitened Jesus, right. Has become that. And, uh, it's actually, on one hand, like, it's kind of impressive, like, how you get from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to, like, a status quo <laughs> <code> Jesus. Like, <laughs> right. it's actually impressive. There's right. some, like, quick, slight, sleight of hand stuff yeah. happening to get to where we are. But now it's just taken for granted, right? Yeah. Um, that, that Jesus is this kind of sweet, docile, mm-hmm. look up, staring up at the sky with his hair flowing down. Yeah. And, you know, like, that's the image that we have of him. And, uh, we've got to do something about how we, De- col- how we've colonized Jesus. Literally. It's not only yeah. that, that people yes. have been colonized. Literally Jesus went through decolonization yes. process in yes. the West. And we've got to grapple with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I talk about that in my own book where I kind of went through this process of really getting a better understanding of Jesus. And some of it was through my involvement with relative Christians, which is, I think where you and I ended up meeting. Um, yeah. And it's like, the more I understood Jesus, who I, who I feel that the Bible presents him as the more I was offensive to my Christian friends. Right. Like they felt like I was like on some slippery slope. And I was like, dude, I'm like, I'm Jesus. Like I actually understand Jesus more. I feel like I'm more in tune with Jesus. And you guys feel like I am on a slippery slope because I don't know.
3: It's yeah, wild. no, it makes sense. It, it, yeah. And so for me, like, one thing that, which I always take as a compliment is people, when they read, have read Trouble I've Seen, have said, you know, I feel like I've walked away with a better understanding of Jesus. Yeah. Just as much that
0: as that is a compliment. You know, yeah.
3: Understanding racism, white supremacy, and having a language for all of that now. Mm-hmm. Like, they feel like they see Jesus more. And I feel like that's part of the work that I want to do. And
0: Absolutely. To help
3: people. Because His image It's just been so distorted, so vandalized. Mm -hmm. The image of Jesus has been so vandalized in our society. And we've got a lot of work to do if we're going to repair that.
0: Well, even when you think about the fact that there are so many white churches for whom they're just now dipping their toes into the conversation around race, and they feel like it's a big risk to do so with a congregation of Christians. Right. Like how right. far have we gotten away from Jesus when it's risky, risky for a pastor to speak about racism to a group of Christians?
3: Yeah, something has gone terribly wrong. Way We've wrong. gone way off the rails by that point. Yeah. Um and so it should be a wake-up call. Again, and and I'm glad that some people are and some people seem to at least be willing to go even deeper. I'm yeah. not sure everyone's there, but um no. but I'll take whatever we can get. <laughs> You're late to the party, but come on in anyway. Right. Yeah. 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 Right.
0: Where do, you know, where, um, what advice do you have for white pastors who, who are feeling overwhelmed, feeling, um, like, I don't even know where to start, maybe recognizing that they haven't done the work yet, that they haven't, that they don't actually have connections with any black leadership. Um, you know, that that pastor who goes on Sunday morning, I got to talk about race, and I don't even know who to talk to, who to ask, where to go, or what right. to say. What, you know, do you have any advice for those guys? Because I think that's a lot of white pastors right now.
3: Well, I mean, I think the very first thing is good, good to name that, right? It's yeah. actually something meaningful to say, I don't have what it yes. takes to yes. pass this on. Because the fact of the matter is, is... Most white Christian communities don't have a tradition for doing this work. You yeah, know, I can't, I can't, I'm going to tell you a story that'll get into this a little bit. So, I when I first moved back to Harrisburg um, from Philly to teach at Messiah University, I um, I was invited to speak at this local congregation who was reading my book, and so went, Talked to them, everything went well. And one of the things I mentioned was um, one of my friends, my colleague, uh, leads this civil rights bus tour, nine day bus tour. Excellence, what they do. I mean, in fact, they. That's where I first met Reverend CT Vivian was in that context, um, as well as many other folks who are still living. Um, and anyway, so I recommend it. They end up taking me up on this, so they go on this bus tour with another church to, um, because they were all white. They wanted to invite mm-hmm. another church with them, so afterwards, like a year later, they invite my colleague to go and speak at the church and they're showing the music, you know, churches, are, they got the sentimental music going and the pictures <laughs> and all that stuff as they're showing the slides. And that ends. And right before my friend is about to go up and preach, um, an older white gentleman yells out, why can't we just get over it? Right. <laughs> just like yelled it out into the <sighs> space and it's just wild. And so you know, he's literally like right about to preach and that's the atmosphere that he's about yeah. to enter into the pastor. lead pastor tries to like, you know, smooth <laughs> it over, but you can't undo yeah. that. It's, it's in the air. Yeah. now.
0: Can't put um, that genie back in the bottle.
3: <laughs> that's not coming back. <laughs> um, and then he goes up and speak anyway. So I tell a story cause I always like, I like joking about like, you know, what would I do if I was in that space? Because I think like these, I love moments like these, because I think they're like teachable moments. So I was in my mind, you know, my troubled, subversive mind, I'm thinking about what would I say or do Mm -hmm. in that moment. So I'd say like, maybe I would open up a conversation, right, Mm -hmm. with the guy. Yeah, And maybe I want to ask him some questions, because I don't want to assume anything about his life. You know, maybe it's possible that, you know, he had been living his whole life. He'd been doing so much anti-racism work his whole entire <laughs> life, committed to racial <laughs> justice. And so now he's like, all right, it's time to get over this. I've been so committed to it. I think we're done.
2: Mm-hmm. Or
3: maybe like he came from like a long legacy of people. Like, you know, like his, his folks were all like, you know, uh, what, marching with Dr. King and the civil rights? Maybe his, like, great, great grandfather was the abolitionist against slavery. Like, you know, maybe he's just yeah. this long line legacy. Everybody had been so faithful, challenging the racism in society. And so now he's like, we can get over it. Maybe his whole, like, community, everybody around him, you know, was just, you know, um, just doing the anti-racism mm-hmm. work, committed to racial justice. And now he's like, all right, guys, we're done. Let's get over it. Right. And of course, I joke and say the fact of the matter is, is um, none of that is even slightly likely, right? Yeah, that's um, all very generous. It's very generous, right? <laughs> because the reality is, and most people understand this, yeah. is that they, in their own personal lives, haven't been doing the work. Yeah. Their families they haven't been passing that on. Their Mm-mm. communities have not been doing the work. And so, the real question isn't how do we get over it? How do we get on it for the first time? Right? And right. so, so for pastors that want to actually engage, they need to name that, identify yeah. the, the failure. Yes. Um, that they have not engaged in this work and say, yeah. how do we get on this for the first time? Mm-hmm. And we don't have the tools to get there. Who, what traditions and communities have mm-hmm. been doing this work, right? Absolutely. Clearly, uh, one of the easiest spaces is the black church and particularly the prophetic wing of the black church, right? Mm-hmm. That th- this work has been going on for generations. And so, um, there's resources to draw from. There's leaders to learn from. Um, yeah. And maybe these white pastors need a black mentor, right? Yes. And stop seeing themselves as having everything to give, um, and yeah. teachers, but as students and having something to receive and to learn from. Yeah. And so I think that those postures where the first are last and the last are first are really important for these moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, read widely. I mean, I, I wrote trouble I've seen and other folks have written lots of resources like this, um, mm-hmm. uh, precisely for folks to engage and to go deeper to begin yeah. to understand, um, and you can pay folks, right? Also to, to I was come just in to do about work, to say that though right? too,
0: because I think, you know I, I think there's this assumption of like, well, I'll just grab, you know, the the, the black pastor I know and tax mm-hmm. him to educate me and like I think that white churches who recognize that they have not been engaged at this level need to put some budget forward. Put it in the budget. That's right. But in the budget and and pay for that mentorship and pay for that education because, you know, black people are a minority and they're taxed and tired right now. Right. You know, right. I mean, you guys are being stretched thin by everyone, you know, everyone wanting your expertise suddenly.
3: Yeah. Everybody. And, everyone. Right. And yeah. so uh, I was so I, I was paid recently for a group to, uh, in Boise, Idaho, and I was learning that so they don't have a large black population there. Mm-hmm. Um, And so there's this black pastor that um, everybody is just calling on everybody, but he wasn't doing like this work prior. So he wasn't even sure, like, you know, Uh how to like, so I told him, I was like, look, you 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 got to set a fee. You can't, because there's something unhealthy about the relationship. If they just expect you to just be serving them all the time um, and not recognizing that you're bringing expertise to the table and that you have limited time. Yeah. um, and that you got your own issues, right? Your and so, own job, your own. Right, you got your own job. He's a pastor yeah. himself. He's got all that stuff that he's got to work through. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I, I mean, um, I'm always very clear with folks that um, that if you want me to come and do anti-racism training or mm-hmm. racial justice training or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you're going to pay me for my time, absolutely. And and I think that yeah, as you said, they got to put in the budget. They got to show that it actually matters, right? Yeah. And and usually the church's budget is a reflection of what actually matters to a congregation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of white churches need to also take a look at their staff and, you know, make sure their staff is reflective of the community at large. You know, because I just think that that often doesn't happen either. Way too often. Thank you so much for chatting with us. I'm going to link your books up in the caption, but where can people find you online?
3: Yeah, you can find me. um, I'm on Twitter. Um, So my handle is D-R-U-H-A-R-T, Drew Hart. Same thing for Instagram. I have a Facebook page um i do i'm a co-host um for the inverse podcast not everyone knows that yet because i joined jared mckenna for the inverse podcast for this season three so i've been doing that that's been a lot of fun and let me think and my website is drew gi heart.com and yeah you can find me those spaces
0: awesome well i really appreciate you talking with me about all this today
3: yeah thanks for having me kristen this has been good
0: Hey, thank you for joining us. Continue the self-care conversation with us on Instagram
1: at, at Selfie Podcast and in the Selfie Podcast community group on Facebook. You can also visit our website to check out the resources we've talked about in each episode at selfiepodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to Selfie on iTunes so you can catch up with us next week. Take care.